Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We often hear statements about movement being medicine, or if we could bottle physical activity, wouldn't it make a great pill? We hear a lot about the benefits of staying active, but how do we operationalize that? How much should we do? Of what particular type of activity? Finding the balance between overdoing this and maintaining joint function can sometimes be quite tricky. We strongly advocate for the role of physical activity, but oftentimes we don't explain well how to do that. The purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to dig down into that core treatment option of physical activity, unpack it a little bit, and hopefully make it so it's practical suggestions that you can operationalize. To identify the benefits, but also hopefully give you tips around behavior change and prescriptions for making this part of your daily life. You take excerpts from previous episodes in an effort to try to distill that information into one compact episode that will give you this information. We're going to start off with Dan White. He joined us in season one in episode 17. So if you want to go back and listen to the full content, do so. But we spoke about a lot of different topics, but in particular, what types of physical activity were most helpful? How much physical activity should a person aim to do and at what intensity? And were there any tips or wearables that he could recommend that might allow a person to identify if they're getting the required number of steps per day and the right intensity? And then, you know, if you've been sedentary your whole life, sometimes it's really hard to change a behavior. But how do you start and how do you best succeed in sticking to that plan? Oftentimes, a person, when they have osteoarthritis, complains that it hurts when they move. But what evidence is there that physical activity is actually helpful rather than harmful, which is, I guess, part of the common community perception? Yeah, it's no doubt that in the short term, movement can be uncomfortable. It can hurt, especially for people with osteoarthritis. Uh, There's no doubt that that's 
that happens. And actually, I, I was recently listening to a podcast that uh, talked about some of the benefits of physical activity from the, the person's perspective of why do they stay active. And it came out, at least in people who are midlife, it seems that the short-term benefits, uh, the very short-term benefits are those that people find to be most valuable, uh, such as like after you work out, you have this uh, sort of a good, you're in a good mood, you can reduce the stress and those sorts of things that are very short-term uh, benefit. You feel relaxed. And, you know, unfortunately for osteoarthritis, when especially when you start, it's going to hurt. <laughs> no way the way of saying it. It's not going to be, you don't get that short-term pain relief immediately after exercise, and likely it's, it's going to make it a little bit worse. The good news is that uh, if you can push through over that hump of the short-term pain, the long-term benefits, or I'd say perhaps more mid-term benefits, are substantial, uh, especially for people who have a chronic disease. And for uh, people with knee osteoarthritis, from a, specific to them, uh, the pain reduction on a midterm basis uh, approaches that that you get with medication. It's the same reduction in pain, but without the side effects. You know, especially with the opioid crisis, you know, just trying to get off of meds is huge. And exercise does that at, at the same level or same effect. There's also major strength gains you have uh, with exercise, as well as just the ability to function. That is, you know, get out of bed, get out of a chair, climb the stairs, you know, without difficulty or with less difficulty. So for OA, you know, there are substantial gains. And in general, actually, for exercise, there's really known general benefits, including cardiovascular health, it's mood stabilizing, it's a good prevention method for uh, weight gain. In other words, it helps maintain your weight. And, you know, overall, if you could package it in a pill, it'd be a blockbuster drug. <laughs> so, <laughs> we haven't figured out how to do that yet, but we know how to get there with the hard work. That's great. And I'm looking, looking forward to doing it. Um, looking forward to when they actually do that. Um, but <laughs> now, just to pull that apart a little bit further, you mentioned that when they first start, it might actually hurt a little bit more. Is there any pain that a person should be more wary or cautious of where they maybe should say, slow down, back off? And is there a, any good pain that people should be cognizant of? Yeah, that's a, that is a good question. I think the pain, pain is a very personal thing that is not my area of expertise. Clinically, I tell people, if you wake up the next morning and your knee is still bothering you, you probably have overdone it. Immediately after it's going to hurt, that's understandable, but then it should start to subside. And, you know, within 24 hours, you should be back to, back to baseline. After 24 hours, you might have pain, but that could be muscle soreness, the sort of delayed muscle soreness you get, uh, which is actually really good pain. That, that's the type of thing you want to see because uh, that means your muscles are growing. There's a, an investigator in uh, Australia who uh, took a look at how much walking is a, a safe amount uh, for people with sort of advanced osteoarthritis and found that you can walk up to 70 minutes a week or 10 minutes each day without, without an increase in pain uh, in the midterm. So I find that, you know, that's, that's a, on the smaller end of studies, but I find that is a good sort of uh, rule of thumb to, for people starting out, you know, saying, well, how much can I do? I'm really nervous about it. You know, the 10 minutes is a, is a nice mark, benchmark for people that 
for most, that will not substantially increase your pain and, and not do so on the long term. Yeah, and this, this may not necessarily be consistent with exactly what you've said, but I think the, the short-term immediate pain the day after, if it's specifically adjacent to the joint and it's sharp, that's probably what Dan's talking about there, as yes. opposed to yes. pain in and around the joint and the muscles around the joint, which is probably a good sign that you've actually done some work. So what types of physical activity are most helpful? Yeah, I, I think... The first thing, sometimes I find it's good to just define what physical activity is so we're all on the same page. And basically that is just any energy expenditure uh, above a resting amount. So any amount of that you are doing something that involves more than uh, sleeping or sitting. <laughs> so that, that's physical activity uh, and exercise is included in that. Certainly. And then when you talk about physical activity or exercise, there's obviously uh, several different sort of attributes about it. First is the intensity of it, like how intense are we looking at things? And in general, we describe these as being a uh, light intensity, such as uh, maybe standing, a moderate intensity that would include uh, walking at a comfortable pace, and then a vigorous intensity, such as uh, climbing stairs. Then beyond that, there's the duration, so how long you're uh, doing these uh, activities for. So that's just a sort of quick primer on, on how we think about physical activity. And obviously, there's many different types. And, and what I say to people is find something you enjoy to do. There's not one magic physical activity that is superior to another. It is, I think the, the real special sauce is finding something you enjoy and just doing that uh, repeatedly. Again, understanding the notion of what is the intensity of that activity and then what is the duration of that. Knowing that the more intense you can do it, the more health benefits there are and the longer you can do it, the more health benefits they are in general. People with osteoarthritis often worry, though, that the, you know, this notion of vigorous intensity could be damaging to the joints or even a moderate intensity. And we really haven't found the moderate intensity to be damaging to the joints. We have found actually the opposite, that the more time you spend in this moderate intensity uh, activity, the less likely uh, you are to have something like even a knee replacement. We, we found this uh, looking at large data sets and as well as that the benefits of the moderate really outdo the benefits of the light intensity, though the light intensity is still uh, beneficial. Anyway, so the people standing at home saying, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, the basic thing is walking is the most common physical activity that people use, that adults use to be active. Believe it or not, going for a walk is a moderate intensity that, that really hits the mark. And my doctoral student, Jason Jaquila, just published a, an editorial in Journal, journal of Rheumatology that in uh, respect to this COVID pandemic and people wondering, you know, you're social distancing, you're not going out, what's the minimal level of activity that we should really get? And uh, his editorial talks about how it's 10 minutes a day. 10 minutes a day for OA is what we should be doing. And whether that's walking, uh, whether that's doing some sort of exercise, that's the minimal amount uh, you want to be hitting on. And again, finding something you enjoy and doing that is uh, kind of uh, what we recommend. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but <laughs> that's, that's kind of how we're, how we're no, thinking. No, I think it's, it's uh, really, really helpful advice. Um, obviously, some people who may not necessarily like, like to walk, are there any other types of physical activity that you might advocate for for people with osteoarthritis? Yeah, sure. I mean, the common ones are getting into a pool. I mean, that is certainly less 
uh, compressive force on the joints and uh, being in the water just feels good anyways. Uh, and doing any sort of water aerobics is a very low impact uh, type of activity people do. And then on the other hand, if you biking is another thing, whether that is a stationary bicycle or a, a recumbent bike, uh, that's something else. Uh, you know, but I think I have to say, and this kind of comes from my, my CrossFit background, that it's not only the type of exercise you're looking at, but it is the social context that you're doing those activities in. And certainly there's some of, the, some of us that are more the lone wolf type of people that we just like to do it by ourselves and just leave me alone. I want to put on my podcast and listen to this podcast or listen to music or something and just do it on my own. Great. Knock yourself out. But for a lot of people, it's a very much a social endeavor. And CrossFit has actually done a great job with the community aspect of exercise. So finding a group of people that you like to go for a walk with is a, is a very powerful mechanism to, to maintain the, in the long term a, uh, a healthy regimen. And so, you know, maybe there's something with like yoga or Tai Chi or something that maybe is a stretch for you, but if there's a group of people or friends that you can get to, to join you, or maybe just even one friend that would be willing to join you, or you know that does this and you, you ask to join them, I mean, that is just a really uh, fantastic recipe for uh, success. That's great advice, and hopefully uh, people will walk away and use that very practical uh, input to make a difference. You've already kind of touched upon this in terms of how much physical activity a person should osteoarthritis should aim to do and at what intensity. It sounds like on the basis of what you were saying before that, you know, the minimum should be about 10 minutes a day um, and aiming for that moderate vigorous physical activity. And, you know, I'm, I'm all about setting realistic goals and making sure that people start slowly. But if they wanted to do more, is that likely to be more helpful? And if so, is there any evidence to suggest the more that we do, the better the gains that they'll make in terms of function and mood and body weight and things like that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. All the literature in physical activity was nicely summarized in this uh, sort of national report here in, in stateside called the United States uh, Physical Activity Recommendations. And, and this is a, every 10 years that experts in physical activity meet uh, along with other uh, experts from the medical field and epidemiologists, and they try to put together, you know, what is, what's the state of the art for physical activity literature and what recommendations can we make from that? And the number one recommendation that they, they've uh, said uh, since the inception of this is been uh, some is good, more is better. It's just the simple notion of, a, of what we call in science a dose response, or the more you do, the more benefits you're going to get from this. Uh, so as a starting place, you know, we say 10 minutes, but even if it's five, that's better than zero. <laughs> so, you know, starting someplace is going to be better than, than doing nothing. And then building from there, uh, some of the benchmarks that what we've, we have seen in, in our lab, there to be a dose response or the more you do, the better off you are. And specifically what we've seen that in is the more steps per day people take, the better functioning they are or the less likely they are to have problems with their functioning in the future. If you're looking for a number that is a sort of healthy amount of walking to maintain, we found that uh, people who walk 6,000 steps per day were much less likely to develop problems with their functioning than people who walk less than 6,000 steps per day. But that's, you know, again, you can go over 6,000 steps per day as well. And for people who do less than 6,000 steps per day, 
you're at 5,000, again, that's better than 4,000. So, you know, that's certainly something to consider. So I hope that answers your question with, with regards to dose response or to, you know, how much, but that's how we, that's how we, you know, kind of think about it. No, that's really, really practical advice. And I think it's going to provide a lot of insights for people who are out there. Now, are there any other tips or wearables that you might like to recommend that might allow a person to identify if they're hitting the number of required steps per day and the intensity? Yeah, I think the literature on this has been around for a little while, and there's this really nice uh, meta-analysis or this paper that combined a whole bunch of studies and said, okay, what's, what's, the, what's the deal? What's going on here? And that paper basically found that the first step is actually just using a monitor. You know, if you're interested in losing weight, if you don't have a scale, it's pretty tough to do. <laughs> so the same thing with physical activity, having a sense of like, well, where am I? You know, it, it, measuring that objectively is really important. So having a monitor that counts your steps is a really practical way to get a sense of where, where am I on, on, on that scale. The next thing that this, this uh, sort of summary paper found was that having a goal is a very strong way to increase activity. It's, it's one thing to just see where your activity is or similar to your weight to see where your weight is, but where do you wanna go? What, what feels like a good number to you? We throw out the number 6,000 steps per day as an ultimate goal for people, but you know, if, you're st if you're starting at 1,000 steps, that could be pretty daunting. So then maybe your goal is at 2,000 steps or saying, hey, I wanna walk 500 steps per day more. There's no one way to do it, but the main thing is to get the monitor and start creating yourself a goal. There are many different monitors out there. It's really a patient's preference, however, what feels the best for you. Uh, some are hip-worn, others are wrist-worn. Your cell phone has a pedometer on it, believe it or not. You just have to go and search for it. So if it's on you, it will count your steps. Uh, it's completely up to your preference which one uh, you'll use. But I find that using that step count measure is a very practical and understandable way to, to help uh, increase your activity from a, walking, you know, from a walking perspective. Now, one of the common uh, scenarios or questions that I face in clinical practice is a person comes along and they say, I've been sedentary my whole life. And it may not necessarily be completely sedentary, but you know, I've never done any sport, I've never done any physical activity, and I've been quite happy. I'm now in a position where I've obviously got joint pain and that's disabling me and some simple activities of daily living are really, really hard to do. Where do I start and how do I best succeed in being adherent? Yeah, well, I think coming to that realization is actually a big step too, you know, and I think that deserves, deserves a pat on the back, you know, to come to the point where you're making a decision to say, hey, you know what, I've been sedentary, but I want to do more it is a notable uh, stage in, in, uh, in, in behavior change or in that, in that journey of, of becoming more active. So good for, you know, good for those people who, who made that decision. Uh, now the question is like, okay, I've never been active before. You know, what do I, what do I do? And I think this is where uh, I, I kind of go back to the things that I talked about before is, you know, identifying what are those activities that you do, that you like to do and, tr and, and understanding that physical activity is anything above rest, you know, what are active things, whether it's gardening, whether it's swimming, whatever, in actually partaking in those activities is going to be a huge step in getting people from being sedentary uh, to being, you know, minimally active or be being more active than they were, uh, they, they were before. 
I like to put in a plug for physical therapy and, you know, seeking a physical therapist to help you along that journey is an important uh, step. And what I mean by that is uh, it's very common uh, for people with uh, osteoarthritis, especially the sense of disease is such a long-term disease uh, to have uh, chronic problems that they, they need a little help with talking about pain. You know, I have pain that's specific, then I'm unsure whether this is good pain or not, like we talked about at the beginning of our podcast, or I'm unsure, you know, uh, how, how much to push myself. And for and, and those are very fair questions, very reasonable. Um, and, and having a physical therapist work with you uh, through those things is, is just a real practical way uh, for them to get you started. Uh, and again, as I said before, with a, with a telehealth and contacting someone, you might not even need to have, go into the clinic physically. You can do this over a video call or, or, or even over the telephone. So, you know, leveraging uh, a physical therapist to help you with that is, is incredibly important. I guess the, the, the last part is, you know, finding a partner to help you in that journey, you know, finding somebody who will walk with you or who will go bowling or somebody who, who likes to, to go to the pool. And even if it's just a couple times, like finding that person who will give you support and accountability is a, is a tremendous, tremendous asset. Uh, but again, I, I, I do want to come circle back to what I started with is, you know, recognizing that, you know, people who have come to that point who have been sedentary, but have decided that they need to do something is a very good place to be and, and definitely worthy of a compliment and acknowledgement. And now it's, the, it's a great place to be to take that next step of, uh, of becoming more active. That's great, Dan. And after all of that, I think I'm going to sign you up as my coach so that I, I get more physically active myself. <laughs> it's really inspirational. A quick note before we dive into the second half of this episode. We love getting your feedback and things that we should focus on, what we're doing well, and ideas for new topics to discuss. These mainly come through our email on hello at jointaction.info, but we'd love to hear more through our Twitter account at jointaction.org. There, you can hear from your fellow listeners. We can have a lively discussion about new topics and what questions you might have. So again, that's jointaction.org on Twitter, and we look forward to hearing from you. And obviously, if you have a friend that has arthritis and you think they might benefit from the show, please recommend it to them. The next content is brought to us by Mariana Wingood, and Mariana joined us in Season 3, Episode 12. Now, oftentimes you'll hear people wonder about many aspects of physical activity, but have you ever had good plans to wake up in the morning and go for a walk, only to find that you were not as enthusiastic when the time came to do so? We know it's hard staying active. So Mariana helped us to unpack tips and tricks for staying active. More specifically, how much physical activity do you need? What guidelines there are around physical activity? How you should actually get enough exercise and what barriers there may be to doing so? And how you can overcome those barriers and tips for increasing your exercise, but also individualizing that according to your particular needs. How much physical activity do older adults need? So any physical activity is good. It used to say that people should do at least bouts of 10 minutes of activity at a time, but really any movement is good movement. The Really the goal of having about 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity 
You can also do 75 minutes of vigorous activity or combining those two in an aerobic form. Then it's really important to incorporate muscle strengthening at a moderate or greater level. And that should be done twice a week or more. And, you know, those pieces are actually the same for older adults as well as uh, younger adults. For older adults, it's also really important to include what they call multi-component physical activity. And that really just means emphasizing balance and strength training that helps complete uh, functional tasks throughout the day. And that should be done three days a week, which sounds like a lot. But the important piece that to remember is that physical activity can be interwoven throughout the day. Physical activity can include gardening. It can include going for walks with friends. It can include carrying groceries, which tend to be heavier. So all those pieces are counted for that. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful, practical advice. Just to unpack a couple of the terms that you use there so we can help to identify a little bit more what they are. So you mentioned, at least for moderate physical activity that you'd advocate 150 minutes a week and vigorous 75 minutes a week as as a minimum, what would you translate the moderate and vigorous into? Given that people probably look at those terms and they don't entirely know what they mean, what level of intensity and what types of activity might be related to those physical activities? Yeah. So the type of activity really depends on the person. People sometimes use heart rate to tell what is moderate versus what is vigorous. But an easier version of doing that is doing what's called a talk test. And that's simply a meaning uh, talking while walking. For example, if you're doing walking as a aerobic activity and a moderate intensity walking is that you're able to talk but can't sing. So you're able to have a conversation, but you wouldn't be able to sing along while you're walking. While more rigorous intensity is you can say a couple words, but you need to take a breath before you finish your sentence. So you can't really finish a full sentence. So that's called the talk test. And that's an easier way of determining what's moderate versus vigorous versus light, where you could sing and walk at the same time. Yeah. How many people do you see singing as you uh, do exercise when you're out there? No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> um, Sometimes I sing them to get them to do exercise because I'm such an awful singer that people are like, oh, stop, I'll do the exercises. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> now, you've done some wonderful work looking at what a proportion of adults actually get enough exercise. How many adults in the study that you did are actually getting enough exercise in I guess with that question, how generalizable do you think that is to the broader community? Yeah, that's a great question. So the study we did is among USA citizens, so I want to emphasize that. And among them, when we look at all three pieces, so the aerobic piece, the strengthening, and the balance piece, 11% completed all three of those components as recommended. And then we, when we broke it down to just looking at aerobic, just looking at strengthening, and just looking at balance, 39% did the aerobic piece, and uh, 26 performed just the strengthening, and 41% performed the balance activities. And because in general, the data aligns pretty well between the U.S. physical activity data and the European physical activity data, it aligns pretty well. I think it's pretty generalizable outside of the U.S. regarding what they do. 
Um, and research shows that, you know, the number one activity most adults, aging adults do is walking, no matter what, which was a piece that we also found with our study. Yeah. So that's really helpful because obviously it, it gives us a baseline as to, you know, where we're at with regards to physical activity prescription, so to speak, in adherence to the goals that we might like to set. Now, in addition to that wonderful work that you did, you also did some tremendous work looking at the impact of COVID-19 and some of the, the barriers that that introduced to people being active. Can you just tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, you know, COVID-19 impacted everyone in various manners. And unfortunately, one piece that's been shown is that with those low levels of achieving physical activity, COVID-19 actually decreased the amount of activity done among aging adults. And in the study, it was adults 50 years and older. And one thing we found out that among those that had a reduction in physical activity during COVID-19, some of the reasons for that were surprising and some were not too surprising. The not too surprising one was really to do with uh, not having access to places to go work out. A lot of, you know, things were shut down. People couldn't go to the gym. They were afraid to go to the park, even to go get their physical activity, which is not surprising at all. The other one that's not really surprising is a uh, difficulty to being committed to physical activity. It is known that a lot of people try to be active and start being active, but remaining active can be challenging, especially when other things come up. Um, so that was another piece that we found during our study. Moving on to the more interesting findings was one of the uh, physical activity barriers we identified to be associated with a reduction in physical activity during COVID was actually feeling anxious about physical activity. And initially we were like, oh, this is interesting. And then we thought about it some more. And it makes sense that um, a lot of people were anxious about not only being physically active, but being physically active in a space where other people are around, being physically active, where they may increase their risk of having or obtaining COVID or being exposed to COVID. So it makes sense that anxiety related to physical activity impacted their ability to be active. The other fascinating finding was that actually People who self-identified, so they are people that said, I have a heart or lung associated diagnosis that is impacting my ability to do physical activity. And people who reported a fall over the last year actually had, were less likely to do less physical activity. So they are more likely kind of to remain active during COVID and didn't really change their physical activity during COVID. And we were like, oh, wow, this is fascinating because these individuals usually actually are less likely to be active prior to COVID. So we thought about it um, and why that may be. In the physical activity research, uh, there's a lot of information about why do some people decide to be active and some people not to be active. And that's all explained by theories and models and other ways of representing that decision. And, you know, one of those models is called the health belief model. And um, within the health belief model, they have found multiple factors that make someone decide if they're going to be physically active. 
And for the population who has self-identified having a diagnosis related to cardiac or lung issues, those individuals have higher uh, perceptions of having a risk of having an illness that's get worse if they don't do something about it. They also have this perception of if they don't do physical activity, I am going to be in trouble. I need to stay active. They also perceive greater benefits in physical activity. They also may get more what's called cues to action. And those are really stimuli that can be internal. So internal stimuli is something like if I'm not active, I have more shortness of breath. So I need to stay active so I don't have shortness of breath. Or if I don't keep moving, if I sit here all day, I'm going to have stiffness in my knee. So I need to keep moving so I don't have stiffness in my knee. Those are kind of internal cues to action. And external cues tend to come from family members, healthcare providers, media. Those are the cues. Hey, you know, you have a diagnosis that really benefits from physical activity. Don't forget to remain active. So kind of those pieces all align and make sense why someone with such a diagnosis would be uh, less likely to be less active or more active during COVID-19. And I know I just unpacked a lot of information there. No, it's really helpful information because Mariana, I think for a lot of people, they probably understand a lot of the barriers that you were referring to there. Um, And they relate quite well to some of the issues that you described there, whether it be, you know, access to spaces and places that you could be active, challenges with other health complaints, potentially limiting their ability to, to remain physically active. So, you know, with all of that in mind, how can we address some of the barriers that you've identified? And, you know, any practical tips that you might have for people who are wanting to try to improve their exercise or physical activity? Yeah. I think my number one advice is that physical activity is so individualized to the person. There's no one intervention or one recommendation for all. And part of it has to do with what is your personal goal and identifying that personal goal and writing it down is really important, not just saying it out loud, writing it down and talking to friends about it, because that makes you more accountable to accomplish that goal. And when you write down a goal, it's so important to also make it specific, such as what are you planning on doing? Add a number to it. If your goal is to be able to dance at your granddaughter's wedding, you know, saying that, hey, I'm going to be able in six months at my granddaughter's wedding, I'm going to dance for two hours. That's my goal. So it's really specific. And that goal is also measurable. How do I know if I accomplish that goal? And then creating smaller goals to get up to it. Let's say you're having trouble moving for, you know, more than five minutes at the moment, have a weekly goal of increasing your movement by one minute in total and slowly work your way up to it. You know, just breaking that task down because sometimes having such a large goal is overwhelming and overwhelming does not help anyone with accomplishing anything. So, you know, that's really the first part is to uh, write down a goal that's really meaningful to you and not someone else. And then try to work towards that goal, you know, those smaller goals and figure out 
Is there something that's stopping you from those goals? You know, is it the barrier of not having access to something? Is it the barrier of you just don't know how to be physically active or whatever it may be? And a lot of healthcare providers, exercise experts can help you overcome those goals if you are not sure of the solutions, because those really need individualized solution and problems uh, solving. But you can also try to think of some options yourself, you know, uh, resources or recreational places to go be physically active is a really common barrier mentioned. But as I said earlier, physical activity isn't always I'm going to the gym. That's just that's exercise, which is part of physical activity. You can do physical activity in your living room. You can move some of the coffee table aside and do some dancing, you know, during a commercial break of a TV show you're watching, turn on your favorite song and just dance to it in the living room, whatever it may be that you enjoy just incorporating it that way and trying to be creative. Um, There's no wrong or right in this. So it's just really all about you. Oh, it's sensational advice. And hopefully people can, can pick that up. And for people who want to I guess, dig in a little bit more to some of the concepts that Mariana was talking there about setting goals and behavior change. Please take a listen to one of the episodes in the library from Shannon Maholko on on behavior change strategies. Now, one of the important concepts that you spoke about there, Mariana, was really this needs to be about you and your personal goals. And some of the challenges that people face are probably looking at the laundry list of what their colleagues and friends and uh, clinicians may be advising them to do, but that doesn't relate to the, to them. So how how might you think better in terms of getting people to individualize some of those physical activity interventions? Yeah, I think one way is to prioritize what is important to you and what needs to be accomplished to achieve what's important to you. Um, you know, may that be the dancing at your granddaughter's wedding May that be walking a 5K with your daughter, whatever that is, it really needs to be personalized to that person. Another piece is that we can modify all physical activity to accommodate whatever that person needs are. So we talked about how walking is a really common form of physical activity, but not everyone can walk and that's okay. You can do things like standing and marching in place during a commercial ad, you know, taking one minute up and just marching in place is a great way to modify for going from a walk for 10 minutes. So it's really figuring out what works best for you and what you enjoy. And it's also important, you know, especially if pain is present, pain interferes with a lot of physical activity in general, it's important to find something that is not going to irritate you, you know, down the line, like in a couple hours or the next day. For example, power training is becoming really big among older adults and really working on that force um, of being able to react, especially if you have a loss of balance, you have to be able to step quickly in order to recover. So some older adults, you know, have been starting talking about plyometrics, which is like jump training and um, doing agility ladders and um, lifting things really fast and adding a lot of power to that. And that's not always the best thing for that individual. But it's important to remember that, you know, 
power has two pieces. It has a force and a velocity. And you may not initially be able to do the force piece, but you can focus on a velocity. And then slowly as you get stronger, incorporate more force. And physical therapists are great individuals and exercise experts to help you kind of figure out how you can modify these things if they don't work for you. But in the end, the main piece is what is your personal goal and how can you accomplish that goal? Yeah, that's really superb. And I'm, again, really hoping that people take away a lot of this practical advice. And I guess particularly just to emphasize the last point that you're making, Mariana, there, that if people are struggling with technique or suggestions, please go along and visit your, you know, your local physical therapist, and hopefully they'll be able to provide you some practical advice. So if you're out there and you've been wondering about how to stay physically active, hopefully this gives you some tips and tricks for doing so. The intent here is to try to promote positive behaviors, to really put those core treatment options for osteoarthritis in your hands so you can operationalize them. We're hoping you found the content of today useful. Look forward to your ongoing support. Thank you so much for listening. And between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.